Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. A long time ago, and then, and then she snuck me onto a music video set and uh, told me that we were sisters. And they were like, I know, we got side eye for that. But Joy held it together the whole time. It was like, she was like, oh my god, and we went to Disneyland, and we were five, it's so fun! You know, so anyway, she's great. Um, and now she's the star of an incredible show, so um, please give her lots of applause. Thank you for coming. Rudy is incredible. Obviously, Saray is too. This book is awesome. Thank you so much, Joy. Thanks for being a special guest and bringing your beautiful body here. Okay, there's one more special guest. Uh, more, and this is a little bit of a surprise, but I don't know, is my, is my intern here? Oh my god. So, my intern, Rachel Marcus. Stand up, Rachel. <laughs> UC Berkeley, and it's from here. It's on her way to New York. So if anybody has an amazing, amazing, amazing job for an amazing, amazing, amazing person, please talk to me or her after, after the event. Um, okay, so um, I'm going to read for um, about 10 minutes. <laughs> and then we're, um, we're going to have a really deep and real conversation, I think. So I'm excited that you all are here. Thank you so much. And thank you, Skylight, for hosting this incredible event. Um, <laughs> so um, I decided that I was going to do kind of, rather than reading through an entire se uh, section or chapter, that I would um, I, that I would do kind of a mixtape of some of my favorite moments in the book, um, and so there's a little bit of mm, there's a somewhat of a lack of continuity, um, but I think it kind of tells a good, tells a good story and has a good storyline. I hope. Um, so I'm going to start with um, this chapter is called "What Are Fat Phobia and Diet Culture." I think it's almost a fact that everyone remembers that kid in their class who used to look up all the girls' skirts. For me, that person was Joshua, preschool. We were four. I remember one day we had been crawling around in a brightly colored plastic tube, like one of those gerbil mazes for toddlers. I was breathless from trying to escape him. I was mostly pretending he was chasing me. He was actually chasing a smaller girl who was behind me in the gerbil tube. He always chased and terrorized girls, trying to look up their skirts, but he never tried to look up mine. And I sensed that his rejection augured something bigger. 
I don't think it's a coincidence that the boy who looked up skirts was also the first person who ever called me fat. Or at least the first person I remember calling me fat. After all, unsolicited masculine sexual attention and the drive to control feminine bodies go hand in hand. I remember we were both standing on the blacktop and that's when he said it. You're fat. I was confused. I didn't have any context for the word. It wasn't a word that had been in my world before then, but there was something about the way he said it. I could tell from the way he hurled it out of his mouth like snot that it was a hurtful word. A word meant to remind me that I had forgotten something about who I was. I knew there was some distant connection between my wish for him to look up my skirt and his desire to hurt me. I just stared at him trying to calculate this new reality. It wouldn't be long before I was in kindergarten and I would hear that word all the time. I would become that word and I would adopt that hatred toward myself that my classmates had for me. For a long time, I didn't know that other people's hatred was not my fault, and I didn't know that their hatred had a name. Fatphobia is a form of bigotry that positions fat people as inferior and as objects of hatred and derision. Fatphobia targets and scapegoats fat people, but it ends up harming all people. Everyone ends up in one of two camps. They are either living the pointed reality of fatphobic bigotry, or they are living in fear of becoming subject to it. So fatphobia uses the treatment of fat people as a means of controlling the body size of all people. It creates an environment of hostility toward large-bodied people, promotes a pathological relationship to food and movement, which when dieting transforms into diet and exercise, and places the burden of anti-fat bias on non-compliant individuals, that is, fat people. In our culture, fat people are used to scapegoat anxieties about excess, immorality, and an uncontained relationship to desire and consumption. Most people are raised to believe myriad bigoted beliefs about fat inferiority and see this fictional creation as a natural truth. They do not see these beliefs as political, cultural, or particularly problematic. They often don't even totally know they have these feelings. They just see fat phobia as part of life, the way that oxygen or clouds are just part of life. The culture puts a lot of energy into forcing people to stay in that sad place of unquestioned fatphobia. This is from a chapter about assimilation and dieting as a form of bootstrapping. I grew up a self-assured, bossy, ridiculous, theatrical little fat girl. If I wanted to do an impromptu 45-minute talent show featuring only me in the middle of dinner, that was viewed as totally normal and actually quite laudable behavior. I was always eccentric. My mom, grandma, and grandpa are all very fashionable people. My mother used to be a master thrifter, often purchasing things like denim skirts and overalls from the second-hand store down the street, cutting them into mini versions of their original manifestations, and then adding lace flourishes and puffy paint to create elaborate rococo ensembles. <laughs> My grandmother is a bit more reserved, but loves a good sparkly flourish. In her old age, she has developed an affinity for glitter nail polish from Daiso. My grandfather was a peacock, always dressed in yellows, greens, hot pink, sometimes even floral prints. He had gold teeth and a 1993 gold Ford Thunderbird to match, which I inherited after he passed away in 2015. 
My family is not perfect. In fact, my family is highly dysfunctional, but they have always been very good at making me feel like the queen of the world. I grew up feeling worshipped in a lot of ways. In fact, my pet name in childhood was Reina, the Spanish word for queen. My grandparents raised me and they were both immigrants from Mexico. I grew up learning osmotically how to code switch, hustle, make a dollar out of 15 cents, and love America. Capitalism, sandwiches, Cap'n Crunch, Rainbow Bright, She-Ra, Peanut Butter, Barbie, Fruit Snacks, singing songs about how anyone could grow up to be president. Bootstrapping was something Bootstrapping was something I watched my family do proudly every day of my life. The idea behind bootstrapping is that anyone can earn anything as long as they want it badly enough. All they have to do is pull themselves up by their bootstraps. This is one of the primary cornerstones of American aesthetics and ideology. It is also a foundation of diet culture. Unlike many parts of the world where fate is considered to be something that lies beyond the reach of average humans, in the US, fate is considered to be something that is resoundingly within the realm of every single person's control. Failure is an individual problem, not a collective, cultural, or political problem. The idea is that if you don't have something, it is because you didn't want it badly enough, or you didn't try hard enough. Though the allure of this idea is undeniable, there is not much room for serious considerations of justice or historical unfairness in this narrative. But it is this fantasy, the American dream, that is the siren song for so many. It was the siren song for me and my family. Bootstrapping is as American as apple fucking pie. My grandfather was a never-missed-a-day-of-work-in-his-life kind of a man. He knew what Americans thought of Mexicans, and so he always felt the pressure to be twice as good. He always wore cologne and applied hair oil so he looked quaffed. Every night he scrubbed his fingernails with harsh detergent not meant for the delicate skin of his hands. He spent so much time reading books, learning new English words, and always trying to outsmart everyone. He picked up every extra hour offered at his job. He saved and budgeted and went to church and bought a home. He went from being a janitor to the head chemist, the factory where he worked for 20 years. He was a good Mexican man. He was the evidence that anyone could start anywhere and make something of themselves. What was invisible to the outside world was how tormented he was, how much he worried, how often he cried in secret, and how ashamed he was of his sadness. He did not speak of the times that he was humiliated or passed over because he had an accent. He was filled with rage, but he took it out on himself and the people he loved the most, my grandmother and our family. In many ways, his story of bootstrapping was a lot like my own. I gradually learned that I was less than others because I was a fat brown girl. The lessons I learned about the inferiority of my fat body were brutal. The lessons I received all about my racial and gender inferiority were subtle by comparison, but both educations were real, and in some ways the brutality of fat phobia made it easier for me to recognize its existence later. All I wanted was for people to treat me like a person. I thought I could bootstrap myself into humanity. As I grew up working my little ass off to get straight A's so I could go to one of the top hundred colleges and work in an office and wear suits every day, success!
<laughs> I didn't even skip a beat when I was asked to bootstrap with my weight. Dieting maps seamlessly onto the pre-existing American narrative of failure and success as individual endeavors. The way I understood it, my weight was clearly a problem. My problem. I learned that it was my responsibility to fix my problems. I was not taught that some people don't like fat people because they are bigots. <laughs> and it's their responsibility not to be bigots. <laughs> hates fat people because it's a universal and undeniable truth that fat people are bad. Presented in this way, I had no room to understand my treatment as unethical or even odd. I accepted it as the truth that had existed forever and ever. It wasn't until I began researching the history and sociology of fatness that I would learn that the way we fear fat is socially constructed. Fat and thin are make-believe categories brought into existence for no other reason than to control people. I'm going to read one final section, um, and then we're going to get into the questions, and I'm very excited about this. All right. Mm. Okay. The more we trust our instincts and our experiences, the easier it is to identify sexism. The challenge, of course, is that women are systematically taught not to trust our instincts or our experiences. One of the first times I remember being advised to question myself was during childhood, when I was told that I was not hungry, even though I was. I was taught as a child that I could not trust my body because my mind was playing tricks on me. I was told that I should question my body's demands for food and instead ask myself whether I'm not just actually bored or tired. This was one of my first lessons in self-doubt. Being pushed into situations where we doubt our experience of reality is called gaslighting. Gaslighting shows up in diet culture a lot. There are real cultural problems like sexism, body shame, fat phobia, myriad injustices many of us are dealing with all the time, and yet we are told over and over again by mainstream narratives that these problems reside within us. The real problem is that women are angry and we are trained to turn that anger inward, and yet we are told and we believe that the problem is our body. The real problem is diet culture, and yet we are told and we believe that the problem is our inability to be thin. The real problem is that we live in a culture that promotes size-based bigotry, and yet we are told and we believe that the problem is we are not healthy enough. The real problem is a culture that uses weight as a proxy for humanity and morality, and yet we are told and we believe the problem is that we don't know how to eat correctly. The real problem is that women don't feel like we can eat what we want or wear what we want or live how we want, and yet we are told and we believe that we can fix this existential crisis through controlling portion size. The real problem is that our culture is maintained through a vitriolic matrix of sexism, racism, misogyny, transphobia, ableism, healthism, and classism that arose the physical, spiritual, and mental health of all people, and yet we are told and we believe the problem is that we aren't trying hard enough. Diet culture teaches women that we need to lose weight by any means necessary, thereby reducing us to mere bodies who either do or do not conform to externally set standards. This is dehumanization, plain and simple. I'm going to go into an extended shit metaphor right now. So anybody who's sensitive about language, just close your ears. To put it plainly, dieting is a little bit like someone pissing on your leg and then telling you it's raining, except it's more like someone shitting on your face and then asking you for a dollar and then going into your house. 
and systematically shitting on everything of value that you own and setting that shit filled home that was once filled with the sound of laughter and love but that's now just filled with shit on fire and then blaming you for it. <laughs> Dieting is the outcome of the belief that we don't deserve to live life on our own goddamn terms and that belief is so entrenched and all-encompassing that it affects even each spoonful of food we eat. Thank you. <laughs> Ray, um, I know you're going to tell the origin story of our friendship. Yes. Okay, go. <laughs> I don't know if I can follow all of that. But <laughs> um, so I first read this book about a year ago, and I'm so glad that it's finally out that everybody gets a chance to read it. Um, you know, one of the things I love about this book is that it's short. Um, and that's, I'm a huge advocate of shorter books, fiction, nonfiction. I think that so many authors go on and on and on and they pad it and they fill it with stuff that's not needed. And I sometimes reading books and I just want to take out a pen and like cross out all the stuff that's not needed. I love something that's short and intense um, it's insightful and powerful and radical. I just love that. And I think you were, we were talking before, and you were saying that that was important to you to write a short book. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it was one of the non-negotiables for the contract. I was flexible on the advance to a certain extent. I was flexible on the cover. I was flexible on um, the publication date. But that was the I was like, I will not write more than 20,000 words. Um, and a lot of it had to do kind of with um, you know, boundaries, right, for me. I was like, this is this is what I can, this is the, the duration that I have capacity to create with, like, integrity and with vision. Um, and so that was really important to me. And I think also with time, right, the, the in case people don't know, full-length work is 60,000 words. That's what most publishers expect, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Um, but I, I work in nonfiction, so that's certainly the link for nonfiction. Um, and I think there is a lot of pressure to add that padding from um, from publishers. And I just was like, I will walk away from this contract if I have to write more than 20,000 words. Um, and and it, so, yeah, it was definitely, I felt really empowered sort of I knew exactly what I wanted to say. And these were ideas that I had been working on for a number of years. And I, and I felt really comfortable kind of committing them to the page. And I also think that the, um the length of it makes it a great book to give to people as gifts. Um, this is going to be like my go-to book to give as a gift or to recommend because I think it's it's the perfect book if somebody's you know like what's fat positivity or somebody questioning diet culture or somebody you know having body image issues like this is a book that you can say here you know read this and you've done so much work to introduce people to so many of these ideas starting on page one when you're a child and kind of showing us what your life has been like and all of, all of the stuff that you've had to go through as a fat child and fat adolescent, fat woman. Yes. Um, and you do a great job of mixing memoir with political analysis mm. and it blends together seamlessly in a very accessible style. Thank you. Um, and I think it's a, it's a really radical book. Mm. It's hardcore radical. <laughs> Why don't they will scare people who don't, you know, aren't familiar with this kind of thing? So um, it's kind of just the perfect book in that way. So um, I just loved it. And, and, you know, you articulate so many things that are so hard to put into words. Mm -hmm. And there were parts of it that were really hard to read. Like I just wanted to cry. You know, 
it just resonated with me in my own life. So it has such such power. So thank you for this addition to our literature about that. Yes. Um, so um, I just wanted to talk. I have a few questions. I thought we'd have a conversation about some of the things in the book, and then if we have time, some other kind of broader cultural issues connected to it. Yeah. Um, so we first met three years ago, in the summer of 2015, um, Diet Land was published, and um, I was going on a book tour, and San Francisco was my first stop, and I, I knew your work, but I didn't know you, but I emailed you, and I'm like, did you want to do an event with me? <laughs> and it's just like this kind of an event at Green Apple Books, and um, with Kirsten Grease. Yeah, I, don't know. I still don't know how to pronounce the <laughs> The author of Mirror, Mirror Off the Wall. Yes. <laughs> it was such a great event. But at that time, I had only had a little taste of what it's like to be a fat woman in the public eye. And to be a fat woman who speaks publicly about fat in a positive way, in a way that challenges people. It was all new for me. And you had been doing it you know, for a while, so it was something you were more accustomed to doing. But I had no idea three years ago what was ahead of me. Mm. <laughs> and as I've been thinking about this event and the three years that have passed since then, mm. you know, I've been thinking about that time and it's been, for me, it's been really difficult. Mm. Um, you know, there have been a lot of amazing things that have happened. I mean, Diet Land's a TV show and, um, you know, I meet so many people <laughs> who say that the book has changed their life. And, I mean, that makes it all worth it. Mm. But there's been a lot of, um, I feel kind of beaten down at the same time. I feel there's a lot of attack, there's a lot of hate. Mm. And not only that, but when you do this kind of work, your, your body becomes like a, mm. it becomes like public property. Mm. And everyone wants to ask you about it, you know, an interview about it, and ask all these questions about my body. Um, I'll be on panels sometimes where I'm the only fat person at and, and, and all, including the audience or the panel. And mm. I start to feel like this public spectacle it's been really weird. It's been hard for me because I'm an introvert, so it's, it's you know it's been it's been hard. Let's just say my biggest takeaway from the past three years is that to be a fat woman in the public eye and to speak about fat positivity requires tremendous courage. Mm -hmm. And I never could have understood that, appreciated it till I went through it. And I don't always have that courage. <laughs> Sometimes it leaves me, um, and I struggle with it. Um, and I wanted to know what the experience is like for you, because you've come across this very confident, um, you're in a bathing suit. <laughs> um, and so I'm like, you know, I know what my experience has been. I'm like, I wonder what it's like for Virgie to be a publicly and unapologetically fat woman. What's that like? I know it's probably, you can write a whole book just about that, but just give us like yeah. some idea. Well, I mean, to be, to be honest, I think in some ways the radicalism of my work has kept me in this somewhat insulated um, in the sense that I'm mostly talking to other feminists or other folks who are <clears throat> aware of, you know, any number of like critical engagement with the culture. And I feel like that has been um, kind of this protective factor in a lot of ways, if that makes any sense. Um, I also think, I mean, I think there's an interesting component around being a woman of color and doing this too, right? I don't pose as much of a threat to the system in a lot of ways as like a fat person, as a, as a fat woman of color in particular, um, kind of coming for the system, right? Because it's just like, yeah, we expected that from you, right? Um, I don't know if that's exactly the sentiment, but there's kind of like, there's something about, I think there is a difference between, um, you know, I think that there are ways in which like when a 
when a white fat woman like comes from the culture it's like there's a different exchange happening you know what i mean because it's like you i think when um women of like women of color are already always marked as inferior because we're racialized and then the fatness thing is kind of an extra layer versus like white women who have access to like this this like white nation building and like are considered violating this this sacred contract you know um and i feel like i've already like that's i'm sort of outside of that conversation in some ways to be completely honest um and and i think like right i come at this issue i think there's a lot of pressure to push this conversation into one about health mm -hmm. and i simply will not will not go there right like i'm like this is a human rights issue mm -hmm. um and and i and I, I i feel it right they kind of want to bring me i think when that when there is the opportunity for hostility um they want to bring me onto that into that territory right um because that's that's the cultural territory that's the oppressive territory that's the language that's already been developed um, and the body of, of research that's already been developed um and, and i just sort of am like no right like if you if you want to argue about the conditional humanity of people we're not we're no longer talking about civilization we're talking about something else so if you're open to us talking about the possibility that the U.S. and the West in general is not a civilized place, happy to do it. I'm already saying that, but are you going to say it? Um, and so I just like, right. And so I think that there's kind of a way in which they have to agree to the fact that we are not, we are no longer discussing civility if they want to have that conversation with me. And I think they just don't want to do it, right? Like, who wants it? I'm like, are you willing to accept that we live in a barbaric state? No. Okay. Well, I'm not talking about that thing. Um, and so um, I think there is a way in which. Um, there's that, and I think to be the last thing I want to say is I think you know having gone to grad school and like um, in social sciences and really done the research on this, I feel like there is um, there's a way I know how to navigate these arguments. I know that, that maybe um, some of the folks who are trying to attack, like I know I know how to anticipate <laughs> what they're going to say, um, and I think some of that has to do with that that rigorous like mind-breaking level of training that I kind of had to undergo um, in order to really be able to do this work. Um, so I think that it's like, it's complex, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wish I, I had a media trainer before my book was published, but I just, I me do like a boot camp or something. <laughs> yes. I mean, I have to interview with like, like a perfect, I won't say the name, but like a major, major interviewer mm -hmm. who for 45 minutes was just like hounding me about wow. help, but then that was all edited out. And then it was like a four-minute interview, and I, you know, I was all flustered and everything. Right. And he, he was like not even talking about anything like that. And, um, but it was like the hostility was just like yes. scary. That was my first interview. Yeah. So I was like, oh god, what am I, what am I in for? Because I, I always get derailed into health. I, I wish that yes. I did, but I always fall into the trap. Um, so I need to learn how not to do that. Because <laughs> um, you know, fat and health are always twinned, and people always want to talk about the two. And I really admire the way that you're able to separate that because I think that's very yeah, hard. Yeah, well, I think that that's so odd. Like, in people's minds, like, I just, you know, I'll spend an hour doing a lecture on uh, fat discrimination, about the history of diet culture, the construction of understanding of food in the West, and then somebody will ask me about health, and I'm like, I just, I mean, in my mind, it's like, it's like if I gave a lecture on the history of chairs, you're asking about oranges, I'm like, this is entirely irrelevant. It's only through your own bigotry that this is connected. So I'm sorry, like, I'm going to have to point out this is not relevant to this talk. Um, and I don't, anyway, so like, I think there's a way in which it is very connected in people's minds, but, um, but you know, in my mind, they are, you know, they're perhaps adjacent conversations, but they're not the same conversation. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to dodge that. I'm getting better. Yes. <laughs> um, well, one of the 
of the things I think that provokes the reaction that I was talking about that I find so difficult mm. is, you know, so the title of your book, you have the right to remake fat. Yes. And that's a really controversial idea. And I write about it as well in Dietland, I explored in you yes. know, my way of fiction. Um, you know, we live in a society where everyone's so jaded and none of us can be shocked anymore and taboos are broken <laughs> left and right, you know. But this <laughs> is controversial and it is a taboo, an entrenched taboo. Mm -hmm. And if you confront people with these ideas, like the average person, they lose their shit over it. <laughs> they just, it's its actually scary sometimes. Yes. And I'm not talking about bullies, I'm talking about liberal, educated people yep. who go yeah. nuts yep. for the idea, you have the right to remain fat, yes. you just can't handle it. And so I'm wondering, I know this is again another vast topic, but if you could say anything about why is that such a taboo that just seems unshakable? Yeah, there's a, there's a, that's a big question. I have some answers. I mean, I'm still kind of feeling around for some of it, right? What's, what's become clear to me as I'm talking about the book and in, in, you know, a lot of interviews and articles is that um, there are parts of the puzzle that are still unclear to me, right? I mean, that's normal, but, um, but I think there's a lot of pressure to position. I think I you know, identify as an expert in a lot of ways. I think there's, a, there's kind of this push to um, construct me as someone who understands this in its entirety, and that's just not the case. I mean, I'm still learning this, and I still feel like I'm going down the rabbit hole. And what I'm realizing is every time I think I've, every time I think I've sort of figured out how deep this goes, how far it goes, how old it goes, it goes further, it goes deeper, it goes older. Um, what I've kind of been realizing lately, and I, I think that I, I allude to it in the book, but I don't think at the time that I wrote it, I was at the point where I was I had a sophisticated enough analysis to really commit it to the page. But um, but I think a lot of it has to do essentially with colonialism, actually. Um, and uh, so right, like what was happening. Um, so I argue in the book that the rise of our understanding of food, fatness particularly food and morality, and then the connection between food and morality and body size, really came to a head, or sort of began in the 1800s with the dietary reform movement, um, which was started by Reverend Sylvester Graham, um, after whom the graham cracker was named, and who perhaps is the inventor of the graham cracker. It's unclear. Um, uh, and so, right, he believed that he could essentially cure sexual desire through the control of food. And he, you know, the, the graham cracker, he believed right, that leavened bread led to sexual desire, that like delicious food led to sexual desire, that like, you know, anything with spices in it led to sexual desire. Um, and you know, he, he had a few contemporaries, you know, men of influence at that time um, who believed similarly, like John Kellogg, right, who invented the, or who's, again, is it, did he invent the Kellogg's or did, did he and his brother, did some other random, it's unclear a little bit. Um, but, you know, he is sort of, he and his brother are, are credited with the invention of Kellogg's cornflakes, um, which you know he used as part of his treatment in his sanatoriums for people who were um, you know having ill health or whatever. Um, and sort of Sylvester Graham in particular, you know, he was an anti-masturbation advocate um, and a food advocate, right? He was like somebody. It's like it's wild. Right? You read his lectures. He has this lecture. His most famous lecture is a lecture to young men, in which he goes on and on and on and on and on about masturbation and the prevention of masturbation. Um, um, and he actually has a passage about 
girls um, and women and he's, he says you know if you have a daughter who is masturbating uncontrollably you just pour pure carbolic acid on her clitoris and it will allay the problem um, and this is the, right and this is the man who is the grandfather in my opinion of our understanding of diets and food today um, again founder of the dietary reform movement and the dietary reform movement sought to create the connection between food and morality which we still see today, right? And this is why fat people who are considered to have an undisciplined relationship to food are considered immoral, low discipline, all these kinds of things that attack the core of what it means to be a good American. Um, and so, right, but let, let's go a little bit further. Why is this idea important? Why was he so obsessed with masturbation? Why was he so obsessed with controlling desire and the experience of food as pleasurable? Why? Right? It's like, why? Well, I mean, and, and my theory is, I think, I think that history substantiates this, but I would say, like, you know, I, I also, I can't say that I'm the only person that ever thought of this, but I haven't read other literature on it as of yet. Um, but, you know, at the, why was it important? Because there had to be an ideology of superiority among white men in order to kill and enslave and to steal land from brown people, from black people, right? Um, and so, right, there had to be, the, and, and that argument was waged on the myth that certain kinds of people could control their body with their mind, and those people deserved to take whatever they wanted because they were superior, and there were other people who had an uncontrolled relationship to their body and to sex and to food, and that they could be exploited because they were inferior. And we see this today. This is what fat phobia is, right? And this is what racism is, what a number of things are. Um, and so, right, but it's, it, I think, you know, for me, the, the food component is so much, so connected to this idea of the construction of like a white male superior self, the thing um, that could just take from anyone and that can dictate the rules and create ideas and pretend they're real. Um, and so that's what I see as, as like why this is so taboo because it's literally flying in the face of white respectability to be fat and to choose to be fat. And white respectability is, um, you know, it's like the, the, I would say in some ways, one of the biggest motifs of, of our, of our day right now, you know, I think it like influences global politics in this extraordinarily harmful way. Um, so that, that's why, right, but to sort of, to choose it is to say, I don't even want your shit. Your shit is actual shit. It's not, it's not great. It's not awesome. It's not amazing. It's not priceless. It's actually garbage and I don't want it. And to sort of say that is to, is to literally look at that entity in the face and say, I see you for what you are and you're a charlatan. And that's why it's so wrong. <laughs> yes, that's my opinion. <laughs> Um, I wanted to ask you, would you read, um, let's see, from the very beginning, so here down to here? Yes. And I heard you talk about this in your TED talk too. Yes. Um, so I really love this part. Okay. Um, this is the very beginning of the book, the introduction. My body used to belong to me. When I was a little girl, my favorite part of the day was when we got home from errands or preschool. I would push the front door open with both small hands and run through the living room filled with plastic wrap furniture, past the washer dryer that made funny sounds that I liked, past my bedroom filled with a growing collection of Winnie the Pooh toys, into the bathroom. 
I would take all my clothes off as quickly as possible, shimmying out of my underwear and pants, breaking out of my shirt like it was an inconvenient membrane. I would leave the pile on the floor and then run back out, giggling with uncontained delight to the kitchen where my grandmother was always cooking. I would stop at the end of the little hall where the calico cat-colored rug met the linoleum of the dining room. I would spread out my arms and legs as far as I could, and I would jiggle. My thighs and belly, my cheeks, and my whole body would wobble. I would turn my head in circles. I liked that everything moved and undulated. My body was like the water in the bathtub or the water at the community pool, which I love so much in the summer. My body was like that water a source of relief and fun, a place I could jump into and be held. It felt good. Oh, it felt so good. I remember how curious I was and how much I loved my body could do these incredible things. I had no sense of self-awareness, only the immediacy of pleasure. Somebody has experienced that joy in our bodies when we're very young and that sometimes we can never recapture. Yes. And you talk about soon after that you were in school and then you started to get, oh, well, you're fat. You know, kids started to say stuff like that. And you started to think, oh, wait, you know, there's something wrong with me. You know, something wrong with my body and absorbing this fat hate. And this trauma plagued you for decades. Right. Um, and, you know, that's something that I write about, the experience in diet land, which is, you yes. know, influenced a lot by my own experience. So many of us go through that. Yeah. And I get asked a lot by parents um, who have little girls who may be fat or a little chubby or maybe just a little bigger. And they ask me, how do I stop that from happening? You know, our home is a body positive place, a fat positive place. There's no shame. But I know when they go out there, they're going to have this horrible trauma that you captured, you write about so well, such a heartbreaking way. And they're desperate to stop that from happening. And and it's heartbreaking. And I, I never know what to say. And I, I wonder if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, um, I do. I mean, I don't have the perfect answer. I don't know what the perfect answer is. Um, but I often say, you know, have something that you that you tell them, like a motto or their little tiny manifesto. If you're a parent, just have this thing that you always say and kind of repeat it if you can over and over and over again the exact same way. I often encourage parents to take, you know, a day or a week or a few hours and figure out what you know, what this like two or three sentences that you want to impart, or even just one sentence, and just that that be the, the chorus, that every time they come to you with, you know, yeah, but this thing happened, yeah, but you're wrong, yeah, but your body is weird, yeah, but people are really mean to me, but that's the thing they kind of come back to, right? Because the truth is a parent, like a, a parent who wants to insulate their child from that kind of shame, it's, it's like I, I have this visual in my mind of like a human in the, in the face of an enormous wave. Um, and the culture, the cultural forces are so strong to assimilate people and children, right, at such a young age into this dehumanized capitalistic way of engagement with themselves and each other. And so, right, I think it's, I, I often say, like, you cannot, you cannot insulate that from them from that. And it's too big of an ask for any parent to ask them to do that, I believe. But to sort of give them the tool that can become 
you know, the breadcrumb when they're ready to come back, you know, or that can be the thing they hold on to, right? And I, there's something for me about, particularly about kind of repeating the same thing over and over. So they can have that mantra in their head and they can say that mantra, even if it doesn't feel true in the face of those moments. Um, because like that's the stuff, right? The thing about when I, when I remember childhood, it's the rhymes, the things that I heard all the time that stuck with me. And like your fat was one of those. That was like the chorus over and over and over again, right? Um, and like, what if there was a chorus that kind of you know that that like my um my parents have been able to teach me and i'm going to say one last thing right like stay consistent in that in that chorus no matter what they say because children will beg and they will plead for you to tell them that the world outside is right because they just want to belong um because that's a human need um and just sort of uh, i think one of the problems with me was as i was mentioning right um, my family worshipped me a lot of the times. When it came to my fat experience, it was like sometimes they would give me advice on how to stand up for myself and and um, and to see my body as fine and to see myself as perfect. And sometimes they would sort of acquiesce to my demand um, to tell them that the world was right about who I was. And and they would right now. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that like, my mother and grandmother had eating disorders. You know, um, they were trying to raise a fat kid um, to think she was a queen, right? And like they, they still, they still had all these unresolved self-loathing problems too, right? And it was my mother who taught me, like the first time I ever learned how to like actually do like what what we sort of culturally consider eating disorder behavior, though I consider dieting in general to be eating disorder. Period. Um, but like, you know, we culturally consider to be eating disorder behavior. Um, it was from my mother, right? Because I, I was just. I was inconsolable. I was crying for like hours and hours and hours and hours. I think she just didn't know what to do. And so I often encourage parents that like, even in that moment, in that moment where you're like, all you want to do is just give, just be like, okay, do you want to go on a diet? Okay. Right. Um, don't do it, you know? Um, and so stay consistent and have kind of a mantra. That's like a chorus. They can kind of remember because they'll hold on to that and they'll remember that later. And you have no idea like how it, how it sort of creates like this framework. Um, within them, right? Like it, it, it might be the one little tiny bone in the skeleton of like awfulness, but it's a bone, you know, and it's there. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, should we do audience questions or? Okay. I, I have so many more questions I could ask, but it's not fair for me to, <laughs> to get to ask all the questions. I loved your question. Um, I had a lot more, yes. but we'll do a podcast. I told you it was loquacious. <laughs> yes. Um, how do you want to handle just? Do you want to moderate it? Or? Sure. Oh. Okay. Okay. Yeah, the question is about gaslighting and how I felt like my experiences were valuable enough to tell. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a complex question, right? I actually just wrote an article that came out today that was called um, The Hardest Part About Writing This Book, The Hardest Part About Writing You Have the Right to Make That, which was um, essentially claiming space, right? And to recognize that not everybody was going to approach this work in good faith. Um, and I think also recognizing, right, okay, so I'm going to back up and say my biggest purpose and goal in writing this book, that is the, the standard to which I held myself and felt like if I can do this and I succeeded is to tell the truth as well as I could as far as I saw it. Um, and 
for me, it's, it's very hard to make some of the claims and to talk about some of the history um, because I think it sounds like conspiracy theory at times, but American history reads like conspiracy theory. Um, and I think like it's interesting because um, I, as a woman, as a fat person, as a brown person, every level calls my credibility into question in this culture. Um, and so I kind of know I'm, I'm sort of coming up against these different levels of like, you know, disbelief or something like that. But for me, I sort of was like, this is the truth as I see it, as well as I can tell it, having done this work for almost a decade. And I had to sort of say, that's the only standard that matters. And, um, and for me, right, like the, the personal stories, I'm very good at sharing personal stories. Like I love doing that. That doesn't feel super vulnerable to me. But I'm like, the personal stories are in service to the ideas. Ideas are sacred to me. I've come to the realization that like more than a writer, I'm a thinker. I don't care how I have to get the idea out, but that is what is sacred to me. Um, and I feel like that's sort of what I was put on this planet to do was to like, you know, um, you know, take big ideas and try and sort of synthesize them and make them something that people could use to make sense of their world and to get power back, you know, from the system that seeks to, de to just disempower us so thoroughly every day. Um. Do you want to talk about that first? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, maybe, well, I think one of the things when I was writing Dietland, I was studying a lot about consciousness raising um, from like, the 1970s, and there was this idea that um, a lot of, so if each person had their consciousness raised, that was like a single revolution, and then all together they made this larger revolution. Um, so I, I, I like that idea, and I think Dietland explores um, that liberation on different levels, you know, individual level, more traditional activism, and then, you know, violence um, in the form of the Jennifer group. Um, but it's always a question, yeah, that the individual um, liberation versus collective liberation. Um, and then the idea also of acceptance and liberation. I don't know, do you want to yeah, I mean, I'm kind of thinking, right, like collective liberation, I feel like, right, like I'm thinking of Jose Munoz who wrote um, Cruising Utopia, and he sort of write, writes in that book that um, utopia is always, always on the horizon, um, and how do we kind of reconcile, right, I think like on the one hand, right, it's always on the horizon for many reasons, but um, one of my favorite reasons, I think, is um, as we become more free, our idea of what's possible grows again and again and again and again. It's like this beautiful iterative process. Um, and I, I take a lot of solace in that. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's like collective liberation is, is already always on the horizon. And how do we kind of recognize that and, and sort of still strive? And, I, and so for me, it's like that doesn't, that doesn't deter me at all, the idea that maybe like you know, that will never entirely reach it, um, doesn't, doesn't deter me at all. Um, and I guess, the, right, like, hmm, I mean, I'm thinking about kind of this individual liberation, how that's so, 
it's so important, right? And I've seen it happen. Like, I mean, it's, it's difficult to happen, right? Like in a very, uh, like it's very, very hard for an individual to liberate themselves without any support. <laughs> um, because right, like we, we're sort of social creatures and we need somebody to, we need at least one other person to inform, uh, affirm our reality. Is what I've kind of realized, especially by, you know, in, in the cultural context where we're constantly being gaslit and told the thing that, that we think is our reality isn't. Um, so just one person who's kind of the witness to our reality that kind of can take us there. And, um, you know, so I don't know that like individual liberation is, is itself individual. Um, but I kind of sort of, I kind of want to pivot a little bit to that question. I want to chew on it more, maybe come back to it two years from now. Um, but like, um, but to talk about the difference between acceptance and liberation, right? Like acceptance in my mind is a lot about um, the expectation of assimilation, right? And the idea is that you is that the culture sort of accepts the slap on the wrist. You're right. We didn't see you as a person for a while. We're ready to take you in. Don't worry. And I mean, for me, it's like it reminds me so much of my childhood and the boys who were like, "Listen, I'll stop abusing you when you become thin, and I'll try to fuck you." Um, and so, and I'm just like, right. I'm like, right. So my so the goal here is to marry my abuser or to have sex with my abuser, um, which, by the way, is heteronormativity. Um, and so, Right? Like, that's literally what I just said this the other day. I was like, literally, it's what I don't know if it is. Um, right? And so for me, I'm like, no, I don't want you to have the slap on the wrist because now you want to get with me and you just want to like pretend that you're sorry. Um, I want to destabilize the system that makes your power worth anything. Path to freedom and liberation in my own life, even though I know, like, I'm not probably going to be able to bring down the whole culture, right? <laughs> probably, we'll see. But um, you know, but like for me, it's like, right? How, like, you know, creating kind of this environment where I can heal, where I can be human, where I make demands about what that looks like. Um, I'm going to stop there because I can go on and on and on. Is there another question? Other questions. Really? Really? <laughs> Unless you have another one you want to ask. I mean, I have questions if you want. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, another one more. Okay. Um, you're all so shy. <laughs> uh, I think, um, I, I was going to say one of the things about liberation is the idea that, you know, your mind kind of gets colonized with these ideas and to kind of free yourself from that at least as something, even if you can't. You can change. You can't force the world to change. Um, it's at least a better way to live. You know, I think. Right? Yes, I agree. I'm gonna wait till the world's not fat phobic anymore. Right. We only get one life, and that's probably not gonna happen. You know, in this lifetime. Um, so, uh, you know. Right, that was thought that I yes. had. And like figure out what your utopia is on some level. Like my utopia is living in like a you know, Victorian with a bunch of witches and we have like a hot tub and chihuahuas everywhere. So that's feasible. That's possible. Become part of the Chihuahua Cupping, yes. about body positivity yes and you do talk about it in the book and you have to buy the book to get her whole scoop on it um but 
one of the things you talk about the body pause movement um, is um, I'm I'm mocking it. Sorry. <laughs> um, is um, you were you were saying that it's kind of it's like fat fat liberation and fat positivity has sort of become body positivity, which is much more apolitical. Um, you were talking about in the book about how fat liberation has a vision and has political aims, whereas you know your view body body positivity doesn't have any kind of aim or any kind of thing that they really want to achieve any kind of political aim. And you were saying it was is a movement dominated mostly by straight white women um, who want to claim access to privilege. That so that's really what they want. Could you could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, and I think this is my very strong opinion, right? Like I um, I think there are many people who would perhaps have a really great argument about why body positivity is. Um, you know, like, is not what I think it is, but uh, but in terms of, like, mainstream body positivity, the way that, like, ideas like fat shaming have come into the mainstream or, like, in magazines on the cover of, you know, like, Us Weekly or something. And I, I live in San Francisco, and just, I was just telling somebody the other day, I walk around now, and I hear people using that phrase, and they're, like, they're questioning, like, what, like, what is fat shaming? Like, how to, like, is it fat shaming when I mention that a corgi is, it all has to do with animals, interestingly. There's a lot, and San Francisco is, like, full of, full of pets, so it's, like, there's a lot of, like, is it corgi fat shaming? I don't know. Um, so, in the way that it's kind of become, like, a slogan, you know, body positivity has kind of become part of this, like, slogan machine or something, if you will. Um, I mean, that chapter is called um, What I Learned from Early Fat Activism, and it could, I mean, if I, I think if I thought about it a little more, I would have named that chapter the gentrification of the fat movement, um, because I sort of think that that's really what occurred, right? And I think what's hard is um, fat activism was, uh, at, you know, when I entered fat activism, it was a resoundingly queer anti-assimilationist movement. There were clear demands, there was a clear critique, um, liberation was the goal, and anti-assimilation was kind of like the method or the, or the you know, kind of the aesthetic. Um, and um, when I think about that idea, the idea, like, the idea of liberation, and you compare it to the idea of positivity, um, to me, positivity is not a political resource. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious. Um, positivity is only useful if you already have access to full humanity, which fat people don't. Um, and then on top of that, if you're like queer, you're a person of color, you're disabled, you're like gender non-conformed, right? Like any number of these other things are also like further taking you away from access to humanity in our culture. And so positivity is only a resource to people who are the closest to the ideal. Um, and I sort of see this, this like, I honestly, I see this rhetoric as coded. That, mean, that, to, that means it's like a sneaky language that has other meaning. Um, and I sort of, I, say, I, I argue in the book that silence is a big tool of the body positivity movement. Um, there are no demands as far as I can tell. Positivity is not a political resource and certainly not threatening to anybody uh, to demand positivity. Um, and, you know, and so I sort of argue, right, that um, as, so uh, let me back up and say, um, you know, the fat activism movement became visible to the culture when um, queer women who were femmes, um, sort of a group of queer femmes got together and made a live journal called Fatchinista. Um, and Fatchinista, I mean, everybody loves cute fat babes and adorable outfits, right? It's just like physics. Um, and so... <laughs> Um, what happened is people saw this and they were like, oh, inspiration, 
which is immediately like about commoditization. There was not like a sense of like community. It was like things I want, right? Stuff that I can use to make myself feel good or something. Um, I don't mean to like totally despair. Right? Like we look at other people and we feel inspired. We feel a number of things. Um, I think it's complex. It's complex, right? Like people wanted um, something to give them strength. There was like good intentions and also I think there were like some weird intentions also. So I don't want to just say it's like malice or anything like that. But um, I think that uh, what happened was they got a huge straight um, woman, a straight cisgender woman audience kind of just, de just descended upon this community of queer femmes and did not see their queerness um, and sort of thought, sort of interpreted them as straight women. Um, and, and did not see the, the community building they were doing. They didn't see the way that, that these, these queer femmes were creating community, were um, destabilizing capitalism by exchanging information, exchanging clothing, right? They were not exchanging, like not through money, but like giving it to one another, talking about how they could alter clothing. It was very um, radical, I think, what they were doing. And that sort of like queer political act as in the line of many critical acts was entirely misinterpreted by straight people um, and was sort of like, ooh, we want this thing, right? And then, then the question of body positivity became, well, but we don't, this language feels alienating. I don't know, I don't identify as fat, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I'm feeling a little bit implicated even. How do we make this, how do we make this conversation more inclusive? Um, and what is happening in the inclusivity, um, the transition from liberation to inclusivity, <laughs> is that um, the, that group ends up, you know, sort of, is the biggest group, usually is the biggest number, and they kind of come in and, um, uh, they they create this language it's a little bit a little bit watered down. I could go on and on and on, you guys. Um, point being, that's kind of how what I see happened. Um, like essentially, uh, I think straight cisgender women who had body dysmorphia, perhaps even like had a history of dieting, but maybe were experiencing fat oppression, saw this movement, thought that they could kind of take from it, and then pretend that everybody was just the same. Um, and just, and I think, I think I've seen this in the history of feminism too, right? Where like, you know, like where white women were like, oh my God, I found my people, we're all oppressed the same way. And then like, you know, and women of color were like, yeah, but, and then white women were like, shh, <laughs> just let us have our moment, okay? Just, shh, we're all oppressed the same way, okay? Um, and, you know, and it's like, it's like this myth, it's this myth of like, I mean, but who doesn't want that solidarity, right? Like everybody wants that, but it comes at the expense of the people who started the thing. Right. Um, anyway, long, long answer. I think I'm done. I don't. I think that's all the ideas I have to share tonight. One, one last question for you both. Okay. Um, so what's next? What happens after this book? What, what are you gonna do next? Um, I did. I wanted to tell my body positive, positive, body positive story real quick. Is that okay? Just to, just to do it. Do it. <laughs> connect what you were saying. A couple years ago a major, major women's magazine asked me to write an article about body shaming because they thought their readers didn't know what it was and they wanted to introduce them. And um, anyway, the main example they wanted me to use, once I started working on it, I was kind of reluctant. I said, okay, I'm, you know, mainstream audience, people need to know about body positivity, body shaming. And they demanded that the main example of body shaming, that the victim of it was Gigi Hadid. <laughs> and I was like, she's got to be the main example because she got all this Twitter abuse. So I was like, yeah, I, I quit. <laughs> I quit. Um, but yeah, just the way it's, you know, yes. a thin, you know, thin supermodel because this is all of body shaming. 
Yeah, she's a supermodel, yeah. Who just embodies all of our cultural ideals in like a perfect way. Yes. Not that she can't be body shamed, but she's not the symbol of it. Right, know? right, <laughs> yes. So anyway, I always remember, that was my moment where I'm like, wait a sec, something yes. going on here. something weird. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but as for me, so we're waiting to see if Dietland is getting renewed for season two. Um, so that's up to AMC, um, but I hope it does. Um, and then I am, uh, I, I'm working with a writing partner and we developed our own TV show, so we're going to start pitching that. And then I'm working on another novel, so kind of got a lot going on, but um, we'll see what happens. <laughs> yes! Um, I'm working on, I signed a contract a few months ago for a new book. Um, it's on body justice for girls of color, 12 to 18. Um, and it's going to be kind of a workbook and it's with New Harbinger, um, a, sort of a mental health focused uh, press. Um, and yeah, I think I'm hoping to develop and make more robust um, my online course, Babe Camp. Um, yeah, so we'll see what happens with that. So those are the things in the works. Wow, that sounds great. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.